So, Mark. Yes? I want you to imagine that you're just minding your own business, and all of a sudden, a local news sports reporter has (laughs) walked up to you and demanded that you share your feelings on Valentine's Day. I probably would not handle it well. (laughs) <laughs> but also wouldn't recognize them as, as a sports reporter, so that part probably wouldn't phase me. Okay, so when they say this, they ask you for, like, your great Valentine's Day story. What do you tell them? So, famously, in the words of my father, which I believe I have said on this podcast before, I am a cheap bastard, to directly <laughs> quote my father. <laughs> so, one of our earliest Valentine's Days, Nick and I went out for a nice dinner. And when we got there, they handed us a prefix menu, and it was so expensive that Nick and I were like, there's no way. So we showed them our reservation that didn't say you were required to order a prefix menu on the email confirmation. And so they then had to give us the a la carte menu, and we were like <laughs> the only people in the restaurant allowed to order a la carte because we That's fought awesome. it. That's <laughs> awesome. It was like $99 or something at a place that really should not have charged that much. Even if it was like $70, it's a lot, but you can kind of mentally justify it if it's like four courses. Rachel is making a very dubious face. (laughs) Rachel looks like she does not spend nearly as much money eating out as I do. One of my only expenses besides the dog. I mean... Here's the thing. I am just not a big foodie person, which means I don't want to spend that much money eating out, but I also don't want to spend that much time cooking. So it's really a catch-22. Yeah. I mean, that is the eternal dilemma whenever you're feeling lazy and broke at the same time. Truly. But also, that's the thing. I just, I can't bring myself to care about the food. I, this is embarrassing. I can't believe I'm about to admit this on the podcast. I was in my 20s before I started habitually using salt or pepper on my food because I cared so little that, that I didn't want to bother seasoning it. That brings like white people bland food to a new level. Yeah, that is that is sh- kind of shameful. I I can't believe I admitted that. There's a chance I'll ask you <laughs> to delete that in editing but i know you're not actually gonna cut it i mean i'll do it if you want me to but i think it's funny (laughs) sure well will what is your ideal valentines i don't know about ideal but certainly among the best two or three valentines days that i had were when i was in high school i could not begin to tell you where i got this idea but i organized a group of my friends to get dressed up real nice and go to McDonald's, and we brought a bunch of stuff from my parents' house. We brought a tablecloth, we brought flowers, we brought a boombox playing classical music, we brought, like, my parents' nice dishes and glasses and silverware and all of that, and we, like, pushed tables together and set it up, and we had a blast. I just invited a bunch of people, but the first year, by pure coincidence, we had an even number of guys and girls, (laughs) and when we were going up to order food at the counter, the people behind it looked so skeptical they were like you're here (laughs) like they clearly thought like four of us had brought our dates to mcdonald's for valentine's day they did give us some of the mcdonald's valentine's decorations to put around the table that's really sweet and then it became this thing we did it for the next uh two or three years until we graduated for high from high school and my younger sister mora then carried it on after i had graduated so this running thing we actually sent photos and like a, a thing about it to 
the regional headquarters for McDonald's, and they sent us a bunch of like coupons for free food, which was cool. Well, that's nice. It's it was also awesome. entirely expected. <laughs> but I'd say this is a great example, Mark, of what you and Nick should have done. It's the ultimate cheapness. I Will, paid like eight dollars for that then Valentine's meal. You got coupons for future Valentine's meals. It just keeps paying itself forward. In a way, I profited. I have a feeling you probably still spent more than you got for free. I don't know. They were really good coupons. <laughs> were they really? Yeah. They were, like, not ones that you normally get. It was, like, clearly a thing that, like, McDonald's corporate people could give to, like, people who visited the office. Wow. that That's kind of a surprise. You doing this is fully expected. McDonald's actually giving you good coupons instead of just, like, one free quarter pounder with cheese. That's a surprise. This is, like, the same era as the time that I wore dress robes to a school dance because it was heroes and villains themed. Like, it's that period of me in high school yes. doing a lot of costumes. Fully committed. The Will Redmond high school story. Or the Will Redmond life story. Uh, so what about you? What's your best Valentine's story? So here's the thing. I am a super fan of this podcast. And that means I know that in every podcast episode, there is a secret 30 Rock reference. Not everybody knows this, but if you are a super fan of the podcast... And also of 30 Rock. <laughs> and also of 30 Rock, just peppered into every episode, there is at least one reference to 30 Rock. I can't swear that they all make it into the final version because I have not let every time Mark brought up Jenna Maroney pulling a microphone out of her purse into the episode. Sometimes I cut those because it comes up a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's always, it's always funny to think about that moment. And also, we watch so many movies where that applies. <laughs> so, I will admit, I am not as big a fan of 30 Rock as Mark and Will are. But, I know and love the show. One of the things that bothers me about it is the outlandishness of it sometimes. For example, there's this episode where Liz Lemon sets up a date with a guy not realizing that she set the date up for Valentine's Day. You would think she would know Anna Howard Shaw Day was coming up. I was always a little bit judgmental of this episode until I did the same thing. He knew it was Valentine's Day. Oh, I have heard this story. I did not until I showed up at the bar. This was a first date, just like met on an app. I show up at the bar. There are little heart glitter confetti things out on the bar. For reasons I cannot explain, all of the waiters are women wearing black corsets and black lace bunny ears. <laughs> Gross. Cannot tell you if that's a Valentine's Day thing or just a thing at that bar. I have not been back. <laughs> oh, so it might just be like this standard outfit. Who knows? Could not tell you. This guy is the only consultant I have gone on a date with. And the date went about how you would expect a date with a consultant to go, which is to say, I didn't really enjoy it. There was also a, not inappropriate, but a little bit of an age difference, which I did not care about, but he brought up multiple times. So I kind of had the sense like, okay, you don't really see this going anywhere because I'm too young for you. That's fine. I think you're very annoying. It's all good until the end of the night when he asked if he could have my number. And I said, no. And he asked if I'm normally more willing to give my number out on second dates. <laughs> <laughs> uh. 
I am now engaged to that man. Just kidding. I never saw him again. Um, but I think it is really fitting that that all happened on Valentine's Day. That really does track. But you know where else a lot of things happened on Valentine's Day? In this movie where we have so much to discuss, we should probably dive into it. Welcome Seamless transition. To We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing today's world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if their romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, or if they're a bunch of mishmashed ones intercut together, we will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are rejoined by our good friend Rachel to talk about Gary Marshall's 2010 star-stravaganza, Valentine's Day. Hi, everyone. I am so thrilled to be back. I cannot believe Mark let me back on the podcast after my Nicole Kidman shenanigans in my last episode. But before we get too far into the episode, I just want to point out how nicely full circle we've come because I my first real introduction on the podcast was when I left a review for hashtag podcast summer, I think. Oh, right. I forgot about um, that. <laughs> but my real coming into the podcast was in the hashtag PD summaries when I summarized every integer princess diaries novel for mark and will and now i get to cover a gary marshall movie i'm so thrilled you are the only one that's seen this right rachel oh buddy i have seen this <laughs> so many times and boy I have you one of my dad's it. favorite movies i had not seen it in several years but it was gratifying to watch it and realize that I still had the entire movie memorized via osmosis from it being on the TV in my family room while I did homework in the kitchen. And Will, you've seen one of the holiday movies, right? I have seen New Year's Eve. Uh, my older sister Fiona famously cried during it. My biggest exposure, speaking of 30 Rock, to this type of movie is the 30 Rock Martin Luther King Day parody, which if you haven't seen, go watch it, because it is a spot-on parody of this movie. From the director of Valentine's Day and New Year's Eve. What? Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day? Yeah, neither of us have dates. Too bad we're just platonic friends. I'm just curious about you. I have a right to love you! In the words of Martin Luther King, I just gotta go for it. You're a white supremacist? You guys can just do the fun stuff. Oh my god! All I want is one extraordinary moment. Sounds like you have a dream. It's kind of pitch perfect because I took account of my best ability to track every time someone said Valentine's Day in this movie. I counted 29. That's too many times. It comes down to about every four minutes. Someone says the word oh Valentine's God. Day, and I'm pretty sure I didn't count all of them. I would fully believe you undercounted rather than overcounted. Yeah. So, the 30 Rock thing, <laughs> it's just all conversations of people being like, I can't believe I don't have a date for Martin Luther King Day. And, like, yeah, that is the tone of this movie. I think it's interesting, actually, that, like, Hector Elizondo and Shirley MacLaine are the only couple in this movie 
where their plot line is about like this couple being together and having Valentine's Day, which I feel like is how most people experience Valentine's Day. There are so many Valentine's Day first dates in this movie. Uh, you're forgetting George Lopez and his wife, who I thought were a lovely couple, Alfonso. Does she appear in the movie? She does. At the very end, we see the two of them enjoying their Valentine's Day dinner together. Okay, so then the other, like, existing couples all, like, barely get to be together or have a relationship as part of the movie. Because you got George Lopez, and then you got Bradley Cooper and his football boyfriend. Right. I was thinking of them, too, but they are also separated for the entire movie. And Cooper's plotline is, like, implicitly about getting to his boyfriend, partner, whatever, for Valentine's Day. But he never says that at all. Like, it's a twist that he has a romantic interest. I also always... We'll get a little bit more into this once we get into the points. But I, in watching the movie, at the dozens of times I've seen it, at times have read it as them not being on great terms. I'd buy that. Which we will elaborate on in the points. I don't want to give too much away yet. Yes. I mean, I do have many thoughts about the way they depicted that relationship. Oh, sure. You may yeah, be surprised say, I, to hear, I, but I'm sure we will get into yet, it. Unlike the movie, which broadcasts every twist 15 minutes in advance. <laughs> I wouldn't say there's anything in this movie you could call a twist, except for maybe the Bradley Cooper thing. Oh, and the kid thing. Yeah, the Julia, it's the two people on the plane are, they're on a flight to Twist Town. Everything else is, like, so formulaic and rote. I think that's ultimately the biggest problem with Valentine's Day, which is, it's, like, five or six different narratives, some of which could support their own movie, uh, some of which could not. But, for the most part, because it has to cut through so many different stories, they all have to be so basic in their storytelling that... We don't get to know the characters that much because we don't spend that much time with them. Their stories are not that interesting because they're the kind of stories that we've seen a million times. And so then you're left kind of bored by a lot of what's going on. Yeah, there's no room to add anything new or put some spice onto the formula anywhere. And you compare this to uh, the movies written by Catherine Fugate and then the team of Abby Cohn and Mark Silverstein... And Conan Silverstein wrote Never Been Kissed and He's Just Not That Into You, which movies, for all their faults, bring something original to the rom-com genre. Never Been Kissed brings the interesting element of <laughs> implied pedophilia throughout, so that is new. That movie has permanently damaged my perception of David Arquette. Like, whenever I see him in anything, I'm like, oh, I don't like you. And then I have to remember it's because I hated his character so much. Huh. <sighs> Wow, that, oh god. Catherine Fugate, by all accounts, seems like a lovely person with her heart in the right place. She's very active in the WGA. She does a lot of work with the Actors Fund, like, good stuff within the industry. She has mostly written anonymous, barely existing rom-coms, and then this and New Year's Eve. <sighs> the rom-com is a genre that can just be so good, but has a lot of faults that you have to overcome. And this movie is just like, let me just trip over every stumbling block for two hours and then it's over it's also boring i wasn't invested in any of the characters so i just got really bored i think what's uh, what's a little frustrating about it for me is that gary marshall's directed a lot of classic rom-coms he did overboard and pretty woman and the princess diaries and those are movies that to a certain extent like like the princess diaries is not really here to like surprise you with what's going to happen in the story but the characters are so 
like thoughtfully developed as individuals and as people who are like a little bit different from the other kinds of characters you've seen before, where it's exciting to watch them go through pretty basic storylines. And the reason that Valentine's Day struggles is it doesn't have the time to invest in its characters that same way. Yeah. And is the only appeal of this movie when it came out just that it has every celebrity? Like, was that the driving thing? Yeah, it's the towering inferno of rom-coms. I guess if you throw every type of celebrity at the board, you will draw someone in, including Shirley MacLaine. Shirley MacLaine just <laughs> showing up in her own wardrobe to <laughs> yes. saunter through a graveyard. Is that like a thing? Do they actually show movies in the graveyard? I have been to a movie screening in a graveyard. But like that graveyard? Because that's, that's like know. the big famous one, right? Yeah. And that was partially when they were making this, they were trying to shoot at as many like big L.A locations as possible yeah the soccer field with the hollywood sign in the background yeah and they're at the beverly wilshire they shot a scene in front of the staples center that got cut they show the like disney music hall there's a lot of deleted scenes on the blu-ray for this movie did you end up watching them all i watched every one mark it was the best part of my experience of watching this movie because i think i mentioned this on our princess diaries episode i have great love for gary marshall who was like a personality that loomed over my childhood because on the Princess Diaries DVD, which I watched a ton growing up with my sisters, Gary Marshall gave a little personal introduction to every deleted scene. And he did the same thing on the Valentine's Day (laughs) Blu-ray. So there's like 20 deleted scenes, every one specially introduced by Gary Marshall. How do you have that much to say? They're so good. Well, some of them he's just like, eh, we had this scene, but it's mostly exposition and we found a way to do it in another scene, so you cut it. He talked a lot about how he believed romantic comedies should be under two hours. And I'm like, buddy, this is two hours and two minutes. You failed. <laughs> like, so many times he introduces, like, we had this scene, I kind of liked it, but gotta be under two hours, gotta go. Maybe he doesn't count the credits. Oh, I would buy that. And then it's just full of Gary Marshall in his, like, I was born in the Bronx in the 1930s. Let me toss off some wisdom, like... I always think it's lucky to have stilts in a movie, so I shot this scene with a guy with stilts, but you gotta be under two hours, so it's gone. That's a real thing he said. That's not a joke. He said he thinks it's lucky to have stilts in a movie. Why? It's lucky. Ugh. He also said that he tells young directors all stories are either Cinderella or the little engine that could. So when we discuss these different romances, I'm going to ask that we identify whether they are Cinderella or little engine that could stories. I do have to ask, are these deleted scenes as fun as the alternate ending to Sweet Home Alabama? Nothing is as fun as the alternate ending to Sweet Home Alabama where they fake Reese Witherspoon's death to traumatize her family. Is that the one where the director is just like super deadpan too? That's another really good one because he clearly didn't want to be there. It's uh, Andy Tennant. Yeah. And it it looks like someone pointed a gun to his head or said, like, we're not giving you your residuals unless you shoot the DVD special features. Now that was a deleted scene for the ages. I don't know how this, how this like, DVD release did. I assume it did well, although the movie clearly had terrible word of mouth. It opened really well. It opened on February 12th, naturally, 2010, with $56 million. It was the second biggest box office opener for a rom-com ever. Oh, my God. It's ahead of The Wolfman. Percy Jackson and the Olympians or whatever they called that week nine of Avatar. But then from opening at 56, it only went on to gross like 110 million, which means it made like it basically performed like Dune did during the pandemic. 
I fully buy that people went to this opening weekend and then told their friends, like, eh, just wait till it's out on DVD. Or, like, don't watch it. I mean, it was terribly reviewed. Or don't reviewed. watch it. It's a bad movie. I, I do remember when it was coming out, ahead of the release, it was sort of culturally omnipresent. Like, the fact that it had all these stars, especially the fact that it had Taylor Swift in it, was a big deal. Because this is her first appearance in a movie. And this is, like a year or two after Fearless, so she's on the way up. And it was kind of like, oh, is she going to be, like, simultaneously acting and stuff? And for a while, she was, like, appearing and stuff. Like, she did an episode of New Girl. Uh, She's a voice in the Lorax, the Danny DeVito one. I don't think directors knew how to use her. She's bad in this movie. She is bad in this movie. I don't know if it's entirely her fault. I guess I was going to say, like, I thought she was good in Cats, but that was mostly singing. Like, she didn't do any real acting. Sure, I also think she's good in Cats. I also think that that is basically a full decade after this, in terms of Taylor Swift's position, for starters, as an adult. Yeah, I was going to say, she is an adult now. As a performer, and in terms of, like, her consciousness of her, like, image on film, having both been in and, like, directed and produced a bunch of, like, concert documentaries, but also just confidence as a person, like... I think especially when she was younger, Taylor Swift cannot always have been an easy person to be. Well, I mean, that is for sure the case. And I think she's clearly having fun in this movie, but I don't think she's being served particularly well by the script or probably by Gary Marshall in terms of the direction that she's getting. I just, the dumb cheerleader stereotype is so hack, even by 2010, and it's just, like, not funny in any way. She did meet Taylor Lautner on set, so I guess that was nice for a while, at least. Oh, this is where they met? Yeah. I thought they were together when they did it. I thought they were, like, trying to capitalize on that. I mean, it worked out, but yeah. But no, they met on set. I wonder, like, she was a huge Twilight fan. And I'm not trying to suggest anything, like, unseemly, but I'm saying, like, that might have been partially exciting for her as well. I know she, like, campaigned to be cast in New Moon as one of the Volturi. I mean... I think that Taylor Lautner is a handsome guy, so even independent of the Twilight thing, I don't see why they wouldn't get together, because I also know nothing more about him outside of movies than he is handsome. Yeah, I don't know. By the way, Taylor Swift and Taylor Lautner were nominated for an MTV Movie Award for Best Kiss, of course. Of course. They lost to Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson for New Moon, of course. Yes. Were there any other nominations for Kisses from this movie? So theirs is the only kiss that gets nominated, but they also get nominated for Choice Lip Lock at the Teen Choice Awards. And they get nominated for Choice Chemistry at the Teen Choice Awards, because the Teen Choice Awards have too many categories. (laughs) The Teen Choice Awards have just too many categories. How do you have kiss and chemistry? So honestly, I don't know that I would say the two of them are the couple with the best chemistry in this film. No, it's Ashton Kutcher and Jennifer Garner. Do you have a different answer? I was going to say Hector Elizondo and... Shirley MacLaine, because they both are, like, good actors. Okay, sure. Um, Yeah, let's run through some of the categories this shows up in at the Teen Choice Awards. It wins for choice rom-com, somehow beating out the proposal. And I say somehow in two different directions. One, proposal's a much better movie than this. Two, they came out in different years. I do not understand the Teen Choice Award calendar. Oh my god. Ashton Kutcher won for choice actor in a rom-com, and Taylor Swift won for choice female breakout. They get nominations for... Choice Actress in a Rom-Com for Queen Latifah, which is a cool nomination. Choice Chemistry, Choice Lip Lock, Choice Hissy Fit for Jessica Biel, Choice Male Scene Stealer for George Lopez, and Choice Female Scene Stealer for Anne Hathaway. 
What scenes does Hathaway steal? I feel like she is the lead in every scene that she's in. Yeah, I'm assuming it's just like they thought she was funny when she was doing the sex calls. Is this pre-irrational hatred of Anne Hathaway? This is like on the bubble. I don't know. It's Les Mis is 2012. Okay. At Les Mis is peak irrational hatred of, of Anne Hathaway. Yeah, we haven't fully turned on her yet. I think she's one of the best performances in this movie. I think so too. I mean, I think she's... Known for being a good performance in a bad movie. As in, she is the best part of Serenity 2019, besides Jeremy Strong. She is by far the best part of Serenity 2019, because she, one, understands what movie she's in, and she also understands that it's very silly. Did that stop her from suing the production company for dumping the movie? No. And I don't really know what was going on there, but there you go. Wow. So, I just fundamentally don't understand the appeal of this movie but you said that the critics didn't either no it was pretty universally panned were there any good negative reviews because i feel like this movie could have some really funny ones it's mostly just people being like what is the point of this i i mean i watch valentine's day and it feels honestly like i'm torn because i think some of the stories kind of work and would work well if they were given more time to breathe but it also can't help feeling a little cynical it feels a little manufactured just in like let's put as much of this together and i think especially in part watching all the deleted scenes i don't know it feels like gary marshall had an idea for a movie that would be a little weirder because a lot of those deleted scenes are more of the like random interviews with random people in los angeles about their love stories and a lot of them turn like turn pretty hostile Like, a lot of them, either the people being interviewed start fighting, or they start fighting the journalist. So I feel like there's a version of this movie where it's engaging a little more with more complicated feelings and ideas about Valentine's Day. And then, in the drive to get it under two hours, it became a much more simplistic thing to the point that it winds up feeling kind of unsatisfying. I wonder if they were trying to go for, like, the When Harry Met Sally interviews... Possibly. Gary Marshall said he was trying to go for, like, in he was trying to go for something like in Reds, which I thought was an odd comparison when, when Harry Met Sally is right there. Yeah. I get the appeal of doing those little interludes in a movie that is just one of these storylines. It does feel weird because it implies that this local news station, like a local news station, which should not have 24-hour programming anyway, in terms of, like, they should be airing, like, soaps or whatever has roving reporters all day calling in live interviews with random people. And Kathy Bates is just sitting in a control room like, go to that one. (laughs) I don't think that they understand how local news works, or they don't really care. I assume it's the latter, but who knows? Either way, it's just like that would never need to be a live thing. It's, It's very strange. And I do honestly, at the beginning of the movie, I was like, Jamie Foxx needs to, like, chill out and just, like, cover a different story. And then as soon as I saw him out there interviewing people about Valentine's Day, I was like, no, he was right. This is demeaning. He should not have to do this. Yeah, the poor guy. On top of that, Jamie Foxx's original song that he wrote for this didn't get put on the soundtrack because it was much too raunchy. (laughs) Well, now I have to go listen to this after the episode. It's called Quit Your Job. There's a lot about, like, She makes me pancakes, I love to lick her plate kind of thing. I get it. I get why they were like, we are marketing this movie at like 12-year-old girls, among others. Um, They did have also have original songs by Jewel and Taylor Swift, 
Well, uh, the soundtrack I mean, was a big seller. I can kind of see that, but I also it's I also don't get it. Like I don't remember anything standing out unless they were buying it for the new Taylor Swift single, which I guess at that time it was still CDs, so people probably were CDs and iTunes. All right. Well, I think we should probably talk about the the many romances of this movie. We got a lot to dig into. Yes. So every week we do break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points. Rachel, as our guest, will you take us to point number one? I will. So I thought it would be best to try to do each point as a story. Note that I did not do each point as a couple because then it would have been closer to 10 points long. And I know you all can be a little bit hostile when things don't fit into a five-point framework. The only person hostile on this podcast is Mora. <laughs> so I did my best. Um, that said, within each point, there are four sub-points. <laughs> so, so there are 20 there points are is what 20 you're saying. 20 points. I, like I said, I'm just trying to give it a structure so that we can be a little bit more organized in how we talk about this instead of saying, like, here's this relationship, we have to figure out a way to explain it. I was trying to do the legwork in advance so that uh, things right. would be more organized. <laughs> but if you want me it's to It's a Gary Marshall points, two hours. Uh, if you want me to label the points one through 20 instead of one through five. One through five is fine. If you label them one through 20, I have to find 20 clips to put in the episode. Oh no, that's funny. <laughs> so uh, the first point we have is... A single couple, Anne Hathaway and Topher Grace, who are named Liz and Jason, maybe? Um, yes. Well done. I've seen this movie many times. I have nobody's name in my head because they are all famous. Well, there's that too. I don't know everybody's name, but... Well, I've got Wikipedia up, so I can give them to you if you need them. Fantastic. Good evening, sir. Ma'am. Welcome to the boulevard. Would you like the four-course sweethearts menu or the eight-course eternal love? Whoa, slow down. <laughs> Is there like a one course uh, only dating for two weeks, but it looks promising option? <laughs> because it's, it's, I, I, I'm kidding. I realize that, sir. I'll come back when you're serious. So in the beginning of the movie, they have just started dating. It's been a couple of weeks and things seem to be going well. But then there is a complicating incident because... She moonlights as a phone sex personality. Is that the correct phrasing? I don't know. Actor? Actor. Operator? Operator, yeah. Um, She has quite a lot of money in student loans, and so she takes as many of these calls as she can. But Jason hears her on one of these calls. At first, he thinks she's talking to her boyfriend, but when she explains, he's pretty rude about it. Yes. I think it would be one thing to say, okay, fine, valid for you to make your choices, but that makes me a little bit uncomfortable, so maybe it's best that we end things here. But he's actively mean. Do we know how they know each other? Do they work together or something? Yeah, she works, it looks like maybe as an assistant in this PR firm, and he works in the mailroom. Right, yes. But then he realizes that he has been rude and makes her a Valentine's Day card stuffed with Polaroids because she left her Polaroid camera at his place the night before. And she forgives him. Gary Marshall cameos as a mariachi violin player. <laughs> and then they have makeup sex. And that's point one. Wow. I feel like this storyline would not work flushed out 
as a movie. But Anne Hathaway is quite fun doing the, like, phone sex calls. She is. If you do that again, Vladimir, I will have no choice but to get down off my horse and punish you. I'm wearing my thigh-high black leather boots, carrying my riding crop. Uh, now pull down your pants and bend over. I think this floor has the most valentines of any floor I've ever seen. Pink is you have, and I will beat it with my crop until you submit to me, you filthy peasant. I will beat it and beat it and beat it and beat it. Das vidanya. Thank you for calling Naughty Nymphos. The charge will appear on your credit card as vague entertainment. And this is the one that brings us Queen Latifah. Who notably brings us Queen Latifah at one point also doing a phone sex call. But she's just doing it for the heck of it. She's not going to get paid. Oh, Vladimir. Well, let me tell you something, Vladimir. You don't know what rough is until you've dealt with a true African queen. Let me get my stick. Kneel to Nzinga! One thing that really stood out to me is that Anne Hathaway has her little Blackberry that she does these calls on, but at one point she's also doing it from her work phone. <laughs> right! She, like, yeah. apparently told well, the company, this is where people can call me, just at my work phone in the middle of the day. I just thought that was bold when she has a Blackberry. It's like she's not holding up her personal phone. During the workday, but still. If you can see her holding the phone, you can hear what she's saying. She should not be taking these calls during the workday. I would say that's the problem. <laughs> like, if Queen Latifah wants to hold her accountable, it's not that she's doing the calls. Like, that's her business. But she should not be doing them in the office. She doesn't even have an office of her own. She has, like, a half-wall cubicle. I feel like you can't do two jobs at the same time. Because she's probably letting her phone sex work slip, too. Yeah, no, generally in employment contracts, you are not allowed to be doing something else for money during your set work hours, like gig stuff. Like I could not drive Uber while taking a work call. Um. So Will, we have to ask, is this a Cinderella say, or is it a little engine that could? I don't know. This is a tough one, honestly. Um, Because if it is a Cinderella, we have to ask which of them is Cinderella. It doesn't feel like a little engine that could, although with the deleted scenes, it could have been a little engine that could for Anne Hathaway, because in a deleted scene, she successfully gets a writing job using the creativity that she used in her phone sex work. Without that, I don't know. What do you think? It's not really Cinderella, because he's not rescuing her. I think she rescues him from his prejudices. Okay, I'll take that. But you also have to be being beat down beforehand, and he's not really being beaten down he's beating as much himself as she down. is with his prejudice he's being beat down by his prejudices because this woman that he otherwise likes a lot he's refusing to let himself be with because of his prejudices he's also beating himself down he's kind of a sad sack his defining personality trait before he like gets to know her more is that he's from indiana and his fairy godmother is hector elizondo or edgar who later will cover this, but teaches him that when you love someone, you love every part of them. That, that's what Jamie Foxx said in that song, and he couldn't get it on the soundtrack. <laughs> I was thinking Little Engine that could in terms of they both just keep chugging along against all the odds and then end up together. Okay. Because it's, see that too. it's so a more mutual one. The yeah. Little Engines that could. 
But it's almost like this uh, framework doesn't really hold up much deep when you try to put an ounce of thought into it. I don't know. Gary Marshall said it very convincingly. I need his I was born in the Bronx in the 30s accent to, to maybe make sense of it. That might be the missing piece. Uh, any other thoughts on Anne Hathaway and Topher Grace? Not especially. We've, we've pretty much covered what's there. This movie's got a lot going on. I think one of the strengths of Love Actually, which is another like sprawling interconnected romance movie which i think this is clearly riffing on like i think love actually becomes this big it's a theatrical hit but then also over the seven years between these two movies becomes like an annual christmas classic and it's all these interconnected love stories at christmas they're like oh what if we did that for valentine's day like i'm sure that was the pitch honestly one of the strengths of love actually it takes place over the course of like three weeks (laughs) so when these relationships go through ups and downs you're like Yeah, over the course of three weeks, I'm more inclined to buy that. Whereas this has to pack everything into, uh, I can't remember the title. Oh, they said it 29 times, Valentine's Day. Uh, First of all, excuse you, Love Actually takes place over the course of one week, which we are explicitly told by title cards that say, six days until Christmas, five days until Christmas. I believe you, I was sure it was longer than that. I remember the cards, I just thought they were like two weeks to Christmas. I don't know. I think it's a pretty condensed timeline because, among other things, the kid learns to play the drums in, like, two days. But maybe you're right. I don't know. You've seen the movie more than I have. But anyway, I think this takes us to point number two, then. Yes. So, point number two is notable for the fact that our two partners are apart for almost all of the movie. It's Bradley Cooper and... Eric something question mark his name in the movie is Sean Jackson which I know because I've seen this movie many times why do you hate heart-shaped candy I think because it reminds me that this is Valentine's Day and uh, I'm recently single we just we weren't on the same page it's okay it's over nothing to be done no no I've seen the enemy and the enemy is me Uh, We're not looking at Wikipedia. I did not know that Bradley Cooper's name was Holden Wilson in this movie. I don't think that ever comes up. (laughs) Do they ever ever say that? Ridiculous name. He might introduce himself to Julia Roberts. What a ridiculous name. Yeah, I think that is the only name I did not know of the cast. Did did we know Shirley MacLaine's character's last name was Paddington? Absolutely, yes. I did not. I did know her first name was Estelle. That's like the only name I can remember from this movie. Bradley Cooper and Eric Dane or Sean and Holden are apart because Holden is on a very long flight, presumably from somewhere abroad, because I think they say at one point that it's a 14-hour flight. Uh, oh, yeah, because it's also the same flight Julia Roberts is on, and she's presumably coming back from, like, I don't know, wherever she's stationed. Right. And then Eric Dane, Sean Jackson, is a professional football player, uh, this was a lot of fun to watch as all the Tom Brady news was dropping. Right. This was like the weekend where ESPN reported that Brady was retiring. And then Brady was like, no, I'm not. And then on like Tuesday, he was like, yes, I am. Very similar vibes. But yeah. So Sean Jackson, there's a lot of speculation about whether or not he is going to retire. But ultimately, there is a press conference where he says, I am not quitting football, but I am gay. And then in one of the final scenes of the movie, Holden, his partner, I can't stop saying this name. What a weird Holden name. Holden Wilson. Holden Wilson. Holden Wilson brings him some like lilies, maybe. Uh, Something like that. Sean Jackson is asleep on the couch and Holden Wilson brings him some flowers and 
Sean says, you saw. And Holden says, yeah, happy Valentine's Day. So when you remind me of that, because I retained so little of that scene, (laughs) yeah, it does kind of seem like they maybe were on the outs. Probably uh, Holden Wilson was frustrated that they could not be public about their relationship. And then they don't kiss, because this movie is cowardly. Yeah. Like, on the one hand, you're like, all right, like, it. it's nice that, like, the movie doesn't make us actually watch any homophobia, which is such a low bar. Like, the movie understands that it exists in the way that Sean Jackson behaves about, like, being gay in the NFL. But, like, at least they don't make us, like, watch someone be terrible to him. But, like, yeah, come on, let him kiss. Like, come on. It's so bad. They just stare into each other's eyes and caress each other's faces. It's so weird. Also, Holden Wilson takes his shoes off on planes, and we gotta acknowledge that. He's, like, waving his socked foot around. I realize one reason why Holden Wilson sounds so weird. And it's because it sounds a lot like Holden Johnson, which is definitely a fake name they would use for a gay man in, like, a 1970s movie. I mean, Holden Johnson is a funny name. Holden Johnson. Funny name. In a movie like this, where it's not a joke, terribly problematic. Yeah, I mean, come on. At least give him the dignity of a good name. I just... It's so cowardly overall because they think they're making a statement but they just like do absolutely nothing to back it up with any force it's the most milk toast gay storyline you could do in 2010 well especially because it's like doing a gay storyline without doing a gay storyline right so they get to be like it's a gay couple but like they never have to like show a gay couple being in a relationship during the movie like any kind of like narrative that that couple has we are reading into it it's not actually there Bradley Cooper never even says, like, I'm trying to get home to someone I love. And so it's just like, look, we've got gay love in this movie, too. And it's like, do you? You have, like, gayness is a twist. Like, we're supposed to be shocked. It's like, congratulations, you've played a video game. Look, there's a woman in the robot suit. End. I'm saying, this is the Metal Gear Solid of Valentine's Day plotlines. They really get to have their cake and eat it, too, because Bradley Cooper and Julia Roberts have, like, a flirty, bantery relationship through the whole movie without having to make them a couple and then, ooh, he's gay. Julia Roberts got $3 million plus 3% of grosses to be in this movie. <sighs> okay. Any other thought? Oh, wait. Little Engine That Could or Cinderella? Again, I feel like there's a compelling case for both. Last time you said it was neither. How is it again there's a case for both? Because that's where we landed at the end of the last one. I listened to the discussion and I was persuaded. I don't know. The more I think about it, the more I think that it's built like Cinderella. Because, like, of all the implied stuff that we read into it with the past, where, like, they presumably, like, had a nice relationship and then have split off. And, like, Eric Dane clearly, like, is upset to a certain degree with how it went, but like Cinderella has gained new confidence in himself to, like, go out and be like, I am gay and I'm going to keep playing in the NFL and... Like, everyone's going to deal with it. And then, in part, thanks to his self-actualization there, then the Prince Bradley Cooper is able to come down and sweep him off to happily ever after. So, like, there's a certain Cinderella-ness to that. Uh, yeah. I'm leaning towards Cinderella on this one. I'd agree. There's not a lot of, like, chugging along. It's mostly internal angst. Yeah, I think that's right. So I think that takes us to point number three. Yes. So Jessica Beale is Eric Dane's publicist, I think. Something, Something like, like that. that. And she, her name is Kara. She hates Valentine's Day 
and throws a party every year that is basically an anti-Valentine's Day party. But she is having a really stressful day because of everything going on with Eric Dane. But she meets Jamie Foxx, whose name is Kevin, at her client's press conference where he says, I'm gay and I'm going to keep playing in the NFL. And he talks about how he's also having a rough day. And so she invites him to her anti-Valentine's Day party. Oh, Kara, are you okay? Uh, do I look okay? Should we call a doctor? No, it's this day. Christmas, New Year's, 4th of July, she's fine. Valentine's Day, not so good. What are you doing tonight, Calvin? Uh, I'm actually here about the Sean Jackson interview, but um, we could talk. <laughs> Relax, I'm not asking you out. I'm just curious. How are you spending this happiest of all days? No. Let me just... You sure you don't want to call somebody? I just want to know if, in fact, I am the only person on the whole freaking planet who is completely and 100% alone on Valentine's Day. So he comes to the party, they flirt, and then she shows up to surprise him at the studio while he does his little end-of-day sign-off, and then they kiss in front of the green screen, and the tech people make it look like a beach. Do we think they knew each other before? I had a hard time telling. Like, it's possible they had met in terms of, like, he'd be covering sports stuff and she'd be, like, organizing, getting people to come to it. Maybe they had only met in passing, but we also need to keep in mind, Jamie Foxx is the second sports reporter at the network, and so right, I true. think it's possible that he just happened to be out and about when this press conference was called, and so it was easier to send him. Sure. Yeah, we don't get a lot. I don't think it's ever established if they knew each other beforehand or didn't. So a lot of Jessica Biel's frustration in the movie comes from the fact that she is alone again and throwing this party and she feels like nobody is coming in part because she's the only one who's alone. But then most people do wind up showing up in part because two of them <laughs> were dating the same person who scheduled back-to-back seatings. Also, no one RSVP'd yes to her Evite. Yeah, rude. But then Jennifer Garner tells her, nobody RSVPs, it's Los Angeles. We all want people to think we have stuff going on. Right, and also, if they had not RSVP'd, she wouldn't have had a chance to have her hissy fit, for which she was nominated for a Teen Choice Award. Is that... I hate them so much. The teens need to be stopped, for more than one reason, but they need to stop choosing things. Children are the future, Mark. Part of the problem is they make too many choices. Like, you choose one thing. Jamie Foxx's story is the one that I have the hardest time keeping in my head separate from all the deleted scenes because he has so many scenes just like going around the city interviewing people and like almost getting in fights with NBA players. There's one where there's a guy from the Denver Nuggets who's like getting a tattoo of a unicorn and Jamie Foxx makes fun of the unicorn and then almost gets beat up by him. And there's another one where he's like at a PSA shoot that's Dwight Howard and... Los Angeles Mayor Anthony Villaraigosa and the PSA is being directed in the movie by Penny Marshall and Jamie Foxx is there and then plays basketball with Dwight Howard. Penny Marshall, who is Gary Marshall's sister and also the director of, have you ever done any movies of her movies? We did a league of their own. Ah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Just to contextualize for the listeners like me who are not big movie people. I'm a league of their own featuring our director, Gary Marshall as a grumpy candy magnate. Do you think they have an agreement that they have to put each other in all their movies? I mean, it's always fun when they do. Ugh. A much better movie. That's all I was <laughs> going to say. <laughs> an enormously better movie. But yeah, so when I think about the Jamie Foxx plotline, I'm like 50% thinking about stuff that is not in the movie because it's just weird and on the Blu-ray. I was 
so uninvested in this part too. I kept forgetting it was happening. This one felt like the most afterthought, even in the movie, to me yeah. at least. It's also one that feels more disconnected from the other ones. Like you've got the like love actually style interconnected things where the characters have surprise relations with each other. And this is the weakest one where it's like Jessica Biel is friends with Jennifer Garner and that's as close as it gets. Well, and she's the publicist. Oh, right. Yeah. And she's the publicist for Eric Dane, which is also one that you don't even really realize is a romance until the very end of the movie. Yeah. But I don't think they connected to like the Emma Roberts, Hector Elizondo circle at all. Just that the kid Except, goes to the yeah. restaurant. I guess like the kid's teacher is Jennifer Garner, who is friends with Jessica Biel. And that comes up, like, when the little girl, Rainy, is talking about the party, she says that it's all of their teacher's friends. Oh, that's true. She does say that. Yeah. What a weird movie. <laughs> what a weird movie. All right, point number four. So this is where things got a little complicated in trying to keep it to five points. So the romances we are covering are, number one... Grace and Alex, who are two high school seniors, she's about to go to Yale, he's going to go to Stanford, and they are getting ready to have sex for the first time on Valentine's Day. How about today at lunch? Uh, see, normally that would work for me, but today at lunch I'm going to have sex with my boyfriend for the first time. Wow. First time having sex for both of us. That is quite a special time for you. It's Valentine's Day, we're in love, we're both 18, and it's just, I want it to be special. The point is my parents, they work, so they'll, they'll be gone during lunch, and lunch is the only time that it can work out. I, um... You know, I'm free tomorrow. Lunchtime. Lunchtime tomorrow, I'll definitely be free. Well, you'll be done having sex by then. Grace also nannies for Edgar and Estelle Paddington, Hector Elizondo and Shirley MacLaine, and they are the grandparents of Edison, the little boy that she nannies for. As I said, we have a structure to go through all these points that starts with the initial state, which I think I have covered, except that Edison, the little kid, is in love and he needs flowers to give to his valentine. I gotta say, speaking of our love actually comparisons, like this kid is clearly the Thomas Brody Sangster role and is much worse. Yes. So then we move on to the complicating incident for each of them, which is that Alex goes over to Grace's house to prepare for their sex, but her mom comes home. And I think he covers pretty well for what's going on, but he is naked with only a guitar. So... According to IMDb trivia, he learned to play guitar for this movie, which I'm not sure was necessary. I suspect it was more like he wanted to play guitar and New Line would pay for it. We also have the complicating incident that we discover Estelle had an affair with Edgar's business partner 50 years ago. He had no idea. He thought they had only ever been with each other. And Edison had been promised that his flowers would show up at school and they never showed up. Yeah, it's, it is kind of sweet that he, like, goes to Ashton Kutcher's flower shop and it's like, I have $12, I would like 50 roses. Like, that's not what he says, but it's basically what he says. And Ashton Kutcher, good dude, is like, yeah, we'll hook you up. I also, the whole Emma Roberts plotline, where they're going to have sex for the first time on Valentine's Day, is introduced in one way in the movie and another way in the deleted scenes, and both are ridiculous. In the deleted scenes, 
we see Emma Roberts at like a coffee shop with her friends before school, and she's like checking her phone, like she sent a message, like today's the day. And then we cut to her boyfriend running in what looks like a gym class or maybe just like track practice before school. And he's holding his phone up to his ear as he's doing the running. And then when he like gets to his turn to hand off the baton, he like accidentally hands off his phone. It's a whole thing. But on the phone, the only thing that's there is the text from his girlfriend, today's the day. So he was just like holding his phone up to his ear like he was having a conversation. It's weird. Anyway, the way it's introduced in the movie is Kristen Shaw is a teacher at this school and asks like, hey, Emma Roberts, can you help with this thing during lunch today? And Emma Roberts is like, no, I can't. Unfortunately, I'm losing my virginity to my boyfriend today. So I'm going to be really busy. I'm going to be having sex. You see, you understand I'm having sex during the day. And then I have to babysit a kid after school. But tomorrow at lunch, I will not be having sex. So we'll be good for that. And I just do not begin to know how I would respond if I said to a student like, Hey, can you come in to, like, make up a quiz? And they're like, no, I'm going to be having sex then, so can we do it later? But I do think that the way that she's talking about this indicates that she actually is not necessarily fully on board with this. You think she's, like, desperately trying to get someone to intervene? No, I think she's trying to convince herself. Oh, okay. Where Hmm. she's, also the way that she talks about it with Taylor Swift, she's you know, saying, oh yeah, we're going to have sex. This is it. We're having sex. And it feels to me almost like she's talking herself into it. That makes sense. Yeah, I'd buy that. But they don't have sex because as you wrote in the notes, Rachel, Emma Roberts' mom sees Alex's hoo-ha. Well, that is a quote from her. She says, Alex, honey, cover your hoo-ha. I did not remember that. I've seen this movie many times. You've seen this movie too many times, one could argue. (laughs) I have not seen this movie for the last time, Mark. Um... (laughs) I would not say hoo-ha unless I were quoting somebody. Let's be clear. I have seen this movie too many times, and I have seen this movie one time. So then we have everyone's response to the complicating incident. Grace, Emma Roberts, tells Edgar and Estelle that she is upset because they were supposed to have sex for the first time that day, but things didn't quite work out as planned, and gets a really lovely little speech from Edgar about how you really need to have sex when you feel ready to have sex. And it's not necessarily the situation that makes it special. It's the person that you're with. This little speech is how he finds out that Estelle had the affair because she is listening to it and feels bad that she has deceived him because he's talking about how even when they were apart for really long periods of time, their bond and their love for each other was what allowed them to keep holding on. And she's kind of like, eh, actually, no, I was having an affair with your business partner during that time. So he is very upset by this and leaves and goes to the graveyard movie where Topher Grace, Jason, had planned to take Liz, but very kindly lets him in. And Edison decides, I need my flowers. Just for context, he is in fifth grade, it says in the movie. Oh, it does? It does. He's in fifth grade. I could not figure out what grade that class was supposed to be because they covered some fairly advanced chemistry. (laughs) He takes his bike to the flower shop, which is pretty far, to confront Ashton Kutcher about why his flowers didn't show up. And Ashton Kutcher says, oh my goodness, you're right. I actually have this really nice set of orchids that I guess are yours now. And let me give you a ride in my van 
to where you know that your Valentine is so that you can give them to your Valentine. And then we have the resolution, which is Grace sees Edison, her ward, in the van and is deeply concerned. Her ward. <laughs> Look, as we all know, Emma Roberts plays a reclusive billionaire who at night dresses up as a mysterious bat-cowled figure. Okay, I'll rephrase. Emma no, Roberts. I just, I just so rarely hear Ward outside of Robin. Grace is concerned that the kid that she nannies is in a van and follows him. But it turns out that the place he's going is the very restaurant where Alex is a delivery boy. So he sets up the delivery van all night so that they can have sex. I forgot but about this. She says, you know what? We're really only doing this because we're stressed about leaving each other for college. Let's just wait until we actually want to do it. And he says, okay. And then they cuddle in the van. They will be lucky to make it to the turkey drop. Uh, Shirley MacLaine wearing her own wardrobe comes to the cemetery where the movie that it's showing is a Shirley MacLaine movie and makes a speech about how when you love someone, you love every part of them, not just the good parts. Listen to me. I know I let you down, and maybe you don't think I deserve your forgiveness, but you're going to give it to me anyway, because when you love someone, you love all of them. That's the job. I know that now. And he stands up and forgives her, and a lot of people yell at them for blocking the view. And finally, when you all were talking earlier about how there are no twists, I cannot believe you forgot this weirdest twist of the entire movie. We discover that Edison's Valentine is not <laughs> Sari, the little girl oh my God. that we thought was his Valentine because they both love giraffes. It's actually Miss Fitzpatrick, the teacher. She, I think, handles it very well. And also, among other things, gets him to give the flowers to Sari instead. She handles it very well. It is pretty hilarious. It reminded me of, in a much better movie, that was at Sundance this year, Cha-Cha Real Smooth, which starts off with a prologue where the little kid who will grow up to be Cooper Rafe announces that he's fallen in love and it's with the bar mitzvah party starter at that one. Um, But yes, so as you said, he instead gives the flowers to the girl who's in his grade, telling her, I don't normally go for girls my own age, but you're pretty cool. Ugh. (laughs) That part, I, yeah. I assumed it was the little girl. I will say, there was a twist. You are right. Yeah, they did get me there. And I'll say it again, I think there's no way... Emma Roberts and her boyfriend make it past Thanksgiving break in their freshman year of college, but so it goes. The thing is, I think you're probably right, but I also think that they are setting themselves up to be able to recover from that pretty well instead of it being as devastating as it might be if they, you know, push themselves into having sex as before big, they really wanted to. Essentially, like, as a big thing, like, yeah. Valentine's Day together and all that, yeah. Yeah. All right, Cinderella or Little Engine That Could? <sighs> I'm going to say Little Engine That Could. Okay. For one, the kid bikes so far. But also, I feel like these are all examples of having to kind of grind through some adversity and coming out the other side, but no one is getting you there for yourself. You have to get yourself there. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. If I'm buying into this weird binary, I'll (laughs) go with that one. Every story is either Cinderella or the little engine that could. I'm Gary Marshall. (laughs) Oh my god. Okay, last point. Probably the, like, central point 
definitely the I'd main say... romance. And I would argue also the best one. Like, this is the one that you could flesh out into a movie and it would be a solid rom-com. So yeah. at the start, we see that Julia Fitzpatrick. I want you all to know the reason I'm saying all these names is just a flex. Uh, <laughs> Julia Fitzpatrick is dating Dr. Harrison Copeland. And I, I, you know what? That's not a lot better than Holden Wilson. <laughs> the names of this movie, it's hard to explain why, but there's something off about them. I mean, to be fair to Catherine Fugate, you had to come up with a lot of names. <laughs> you know what? Fair. So she's dating Dr. Harrison Copeland, who's a cardiologist. And unfortunately, even though it's Valentine's Day, he has to fly to San Francisco to perform a heart surgery for one of his patients. So she's a little bummed that she's going to be alone on Valentine's Day, but it's okay because she can go visit her good friend, Reed Bennett, who owns Sienna Bouquet. And he's in a great mood because this morning he proposed to his girlfriend, Morley. And- Morley! <laughs> Every time they said the name Morley, Morley. <laughs> for Jessica Alba, I wanted to scream. When I was a kid, uh, most of the advice that my dad gave me was crap. There's one thing that he said that was it's pure genius. Hmm. He said, if you ever are with a girl that's too good for you, marry her. He proposed to his girlfriend, Morley, and much to especially Julia and also business partner Alfonso's surprise, Morley said yes. Um, while we're talking about Morley, a name that I cringe as I say it every time. She is one of the many characters in this movie who gets a phone-themed moment. Like We talked about Anne Hathaway. I talked about the weird deleted scene with Emma Roberts and her boyfriend. We are introduced to Morley. I like feel like physically repulsed when I say it. Anyway, we're introduced to Morley. She is asleep holding her phone under the pillow. As soon as you see that, you're like, ah, she's no good. They also, we should note, are in a bed beneath a giant sign that says Frolic Room. That, I forgot about that. (laughs) The signs are there that this is not a good situation. Yeah. I will say she turns out to be a lot less bad than I was expecting. Yeah. I don't think she's particularly bad. I think, among other things, you should not propose if you have not talked about it enough to have agreed that it's what you both want to do. And clearly they have not had those conversations. Oh yeah. No, that's on him. Yeah. I think it's totally like, you know, the only potentially bad thing she does is say yes. And then back out of it, which is moving into sub point B of point five. But he proposes he's down on one knee to wake her up. So I can kind of understand you're disoriented your boyfriend with whom you live is proposing in the moment you're kind of like, it's easier that I say yes than that I say no. But then the more you think about it, the more you realize actually wait, this is not what I want. So yeah, I don't think Morley is bad at all, except that she took the dog without us seeing an agreement that the dog was hers to take. That's the only thing that concerns me. She's certainly better than Patrick Dempsey, who has a secret family. Or I guess he has a normal family and a secret Jennifer Garner. Yeah, which we find out because he comes into Sienna Bouquet, which was on TV interviewed by Kevin. To be clear, that's Jamie Foxx. I worry that our listeners are not tracking all the names as well as I am. (laughs) I barely Um, am. So he comes in and he orders the same bouquet for both 
his wife and for Julia. And Reed, of course, recognizes Julia's name and gets kind of upset, but isn't sure whether to say anything until Morley... Morley! Morley ends things. And he discovers that all these people didn't really think the two of them fit together. They had inklings. Well... If you had told me earlier, then none of this would have happened. To which I say, nah. I I think maybe he would have he would have shut down the conversation. Right. Maybe Jennifer Garner should have said something, but really, he's in the right. Actually, no. It occurs to me he does try to tell her before Morley breaks up with him. He goes to her school to say like, "Hey, he ordered two bouquets," and she misunderstands and thinks that he is just concerned because she is getting close to someone who's not him. And she says, you know, but look at you and Morley. And we still maintained our friendship despite that. And then has to go to class and doesn't listen to him. But then he discovers she's going to fly to San Francisco to surprise Dr. Harrison Copeland and goes to the airport to stop her. And they get in a big fight and she doesn't believe him until she flies to San Francisco, goes to the hospital where he's allegedly working, and finds out he does work there sometimes. He is not working there that day. And he and his wife, who I believe is named Pamela, celebrated their 15th anniversary a few months earlier. It is good when she then, like, bribes her student's parent who works at a restaurant (laughs) where Patrick Dempsey is having Valentine's lunch? Dinner. Okay, dinner with his wife, and then she pretends to be a waiter to basically yell at him under the guise of telling about today's special, which is all about a pig with its testicles cut off and then shoved up inside it with some cheese. No, first they take the testicles and they chop them into teeny, teeny, tiny little pieces, and then they take them and they just pulverize them. I've seen this movie so many times. Clearly. My goodness. But then in the end, they are standing on a bridge and he's throwing withering roses that he cannot sell the next day into the river and they kiss. And the DJ says, that's the end of Valentine's Day. It's time for those three little words everyone wants to hear. Let's get naked. And that's the end of the movie. The DJ, of course, is Romeo Midnight. That's how he introduces yes, himself Romeo at the start Midnight. of the movie. Um, this is Cinderella, right? They're both Cinderella? Yeah, I'd say yeah. so. All right. So after watching this unfold, do you find the romances believable? Uh, largely, no. I think that there are glimmers of believability in each of them. But as a whole... Certainly not. Among other things, this many people are not going to get with someone new on Valentine's Day. And I also think most of them, though not all, do have some glimmers of unbelievability or even more than glimmers baked in as well. There are a couple that I do find relatively believable, but largely no. Yeah, I agree. I think they've all got pieces, but there's a lot going on and it's also a lot going on in one day and a lot of people starting relationships on Valentine's Day. Yeah. Anne Hathaway and Topher Grace are together for two weeks before the start of this movie and then I think they use the L word. Yeah, that's true. That is not unbelievable to me because I know multiple people who have done that on that timeline. Yikes. (laughs) 
All right. Well, Rachel, where would you rate Valentine's Day on our scale from zero to ten, where zero means you believe none of the romance and ten means you believe all of it? I would give it a three. I think that if you average out my ranking for every romance in the movie, Mm. it would be a four, but it loses one point together because it's unlikely that all of this happens with all of these people who are connected in the same day. Okay, yeah, I was leaning four, but I think that last argument makes sense for bringing it down a little bit. Wow, that is some solid math. I think three, three it is. There we go. Okay, there's a lot of couples and a lot of characters in this movie. So I think we want to make these other points a little simpler, perhaps. So instead of asking whether people are dateable, um, we'll just sort of move to the other one. Uh, If you had to pick one person in this movie to date, whom would you choose? I would probably choose Bradley Cooper. Except that his name is Holden, but Holden maybe Wilson. we'd need to see what his middle name is. Maybe I could call him that, but I think I would choose Bradley Cooper. I think part of the problem is it's too, it ends with the same sound. Yes. So it like almost rhymes, but not quite. Yes. Anyway, he is a kind person. I think he is a forgiving person, but he's also someone who's willing to set his boundaries of like, if you are not willing to be open about our relationship, then we can't be together. But if you are willing to be about our relationship, then I can move past that. And he is also a Hoya, which is nice. That's true. And speaks French. So this is all about Bradley Cooper the man, not Bradley Cooper's character. But it feels like I can just include that. Also, he is good at long plane rides, which is a trait that I think would be important in a partner that I had. Uh, I'm going George Lopez. He's fun. He's nice. He clearly cares about his family. Seems like a good dude. Good dude to have around. Uh, I'm probably just going to go with Hector Elizondo. He's playing just a Hector Elizondo character, which is always a winner. I want to watch a movie where I want to see like Hector Elizondo's Road to Perdition. Like, What's the movie where Hector Elizondo plays like a deeply menacing version of his usual persona? I don't know. Whatever it is, sign me up. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just since we didn't do the dateable thing, now who's the character in this movie you least want to date? Are we excluding teenagers and children from this question? Yeah. That's a very easy the, like. This is based I on like date Taylor Swift dateable characteristics. Child. Okay. Um. Patrick Dempsey. Well, yeah. The cheating oh, doctor. True. That's just the answer. That's easy. All right. Well, any of these couples that we think are are set up in a good good spot? I think. The Paddingtons will stay together. Sure. Yeah. We already established the turkey drop. I think Anne Hathaway and Topher Grace are going to stay together for two years and then have a really bad breakup. Agreed. Yeah. That one, I don't think it has legs. But I think it lasts longer than it should. Yeah. I think Bradley Cooper and the football player probably will, mm-hmm. but there's not much to go on there. I was say, will they both be satisfied in a no kissing relationship? <laughs> I don't know. They might have to break up to find someone that is willing to kiss. Or if they're both not into kissing, it's great that they found each other. That's true. All right. I do have to ask, though, should this movie be made into a musical? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah. Should This movie does not need anything added. I was actually going to say, I think that if you cut, like, two or three of the storylines that I covered... You can kind of have the hints of other stuff going on around Valentine's Day in some of the songs, 
So you pull the focus more to the Reed and Julia storyline. You just kind of hint at some of the other stuff going on. In like on. ensemble numbers. Exactly. Yeah. In ensemble numbers. I think that could actually be fun. Yeah, that could work. I just think that this isn't like, then that's not really Valentine's Day. It's only the movie think, if it's got all that stuff. The defining characteristic of this movie is that there's too much going on. Well, if you say the defining characteristic of the movie is that there are a lot of vignettes, you can also do it differently where each scene is focusing on kind of a different story. And we just have like yeah. a running thread of this person who is in the first scene is also a side character in the next scene. I think there's a way to do this as a stage production, probably a musical, because I think the story would take well to it. That could actually be quite good. Yeah, I was thinking like one way to do it is you don't do it like a modern musical. You do it like a George M. Cohen musical where like the plot is deliberately really thin because it's a skeleton that you hang a bunch of musical numbers on. Yeah. I would go see it. It's an interesting idea. I think you got, I was a hard no and you've convinced me that it might be worth doing. Yeah. I'm still leaning towards no, but I also really did not like this movie (laughs) or almost any of the people in it. Well, I'm glad we finally did it. These these Gary Marshall holiday movies have been hanging over us, just kind of waiting for a year when that day fell on a Monday. And here we are. Uh, next week, we are doing a movie that, as of recording, has not been released, but I am very excited about because there was one time, I don't know, I must have been in a dark place, but I teared up during the trailer for this movie. There's nothing sad happening in the trailer to this movie. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like when Fiona cried during New Year's Eve, and she said it was the whiplash of watching a person die and then a baby being born. You were just overcome with the emotions. Well, I mean, no, there is something a little bit sad on the trailer because she's feeling alone, which I think we all identify with more than we would like to after the last few years. I think it was the implication that they might break up. I don't know. Sometimes I'm just like in a mood outside of the movie and then anything that happens on screen will make me tear up. Well, to be clear, we haven't said it yet, but we are covering the new Jennifer Lopez, Owen Wilson romantic comedy, Marry Me, which by the time this episode comes out, will be both in theaters, where we encourage you to go if it's safe to do so, and also streaming on Peacock. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Valentine's Day? Have a dance party. Like at the restaurant? Yeah, that's the thing. You know, she's, Tara, Jessica Biel, is dreading this night. She thinks it's going to be no fun, but then she has a dance party and has a ton of fun and gets with Jamie Foxx, but even her friends who don't get with Jamie Foxx are still much happier, even though they just found out that this guy was dating both of them. I think just if you're in a bad mood, have a dance party and it could lead you to meeting someone who will then show you a green screen. My advice is respect the decisions your partner has made to support themselves without imposing your morality onto it. You're pulling that from... Anne Hathaway and Topher Grace? Sure, right. How could you forget? <laughs> There's so little going on in this movie. <laughs> I was going to say, that was like four romances ago. Uh, I'm going to call back to another 2010 movie that we covered, um, Easy A, when we talked about Lisa Kudrow, and say, teachers should not date their students. And Jennifer Garner follows that advice in this movie, and it's good advice. Sure. (laughs) There you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. 
Bye. Bye.